my mind and heart goes back to, it says my life began. I go back to East Carolina University in Belk Dorm, 19, better a $10,000 piece of equipment than a person. No problem. My life goes back to, to Belk Dorm and uh, thinking of the day I came to Christ. So uh, that, that moment has always been a good point for me to go back to when I struggle, when I doubt, when I, uh, to think about the very origin, where would my life be uh, without that moment. So uh, maybe you can do that in the days ahead as well. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to encourage you, if, if you've missed several weeks here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, it, it's all been one argument, if you would, by Paul. So it would be good to go back and listen to catch up and get this big picture of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, where Paul is really making an argument point by point, bringing the issue of eating meats that have been sacrificed to idols as a head. He's been speaking of idolatry. And then last week in, in uh, 10, 1 through 13, Paul warned and instructed the Corinthian believers about how the sin of presumption, if you were here last week, or taking the kindness of God for granted, how that leads them to more sin. And so Paul said, that's a root issue here. And one writer summed it up this way. He says, your being in Christ does in no way give you an infinite expense account to spend on sin. That was the message last week. His warning in verse 12, he says, when we're presumptuous and we begin to sin, take, take warning here. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Or in other words, if you think that you will avoid the disciplined hand of God because you're in Christ, please look back, Paul said, to your forefathers and what happened to them in the Old Testament. So that's where we were last week. Here's what I think we need to do this morning. We, we need to put ourselves in the Corinthian shoes. You know, we don't have much empathy with people if we haven't sort of suffered the way they're suffering. And so we go back and with some empathy to the Corinthians to understand this tension between the believers in Corinth and them attending what you and I have no idea about, which is pagan sacrifices uh, uh, in the temple where there's eating meat that has been sacrificed to uh, pagan gods. And so here's what we need to understand. Those temples were on every street corner. They were like restaurants that line Murfreesboro when you go down Medical Center Parkway. That was their culture. And Corinth was a very religious city. And most of these folks attended multiple religious ceremonies a week, meaning if one God didn't work for you that week, well, on Monday, then you go try another God and temple on Friday. And so that's the culture they were in. Um, Corinth today is only a city of about 50,000 people. But back in Paul's day, it was a city of 750,000. It was massive. It was chaos. It was, it was people coming in on ships from both sides of that little place where it's at from all over the world, all different cultures met in Corinth. And a common slang uh, that went around those days was to act the Corinthian. 
which simply meant to commit sexual immorality. And Paul is saying, folks, your idolatry that you're taking place in weekly at this temple is causing you to sin. And you and I would say, duh, right? But Paul is trying to connect those dots for the Corinthians people. So here's what it would look like. Imagine if you had come to Christ and you had a neighbor in Corinth who said, I want you to come to my daughter's birthday party and we'll be celebrating that at the local restaurant, quote unquote, temple as they sacrifice meat to idols. That would be the invitation you would get. Would you go? Paul is saying here, it is clear in these chapters, when the Corinthian believers would go, they would sin more, not less. As Paul is trying to tell them, here's my motive and here's my mandate for you not to live like this. And so look first at verses 13 or verses 14 and 15. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul gives his motive and his mandate here. Uh, notice, you know, as I read this passage this week over and over, I kept noticing the word beloved. Therefore, my beloved. And I kept thinking, really? Out of all the things we know about the people in Corinth, that's not quite the term that I would use to describe the people in Corinth in light of their behavior. Here's the reality. There's a group of Christians in Corinth. They are far from what they should be. They are contentious with Paul. Now you think about that. Paul was the very guy who came to Corinth, led them to Christ, spent 18 months discipling them, teaching them, loving them, shepherding them, and they are giving Paul the one down. Like they are fighting him at every turn. He speaks to them and they argue. Here's my letter. Here's our pushback, Paul. They just let him have it. And then they're living duplistic, duplistically. They're taking for granted God's kindness to them in the gospel. So I can think of a lot of names that I would call the Corinthians, but probably beloved wouldn't be my first on the list. But here's what Paul does, and this is sweet. This is huge. Paul calls them beloved because that is what God calls every person that has placed their trust in Christ. Here's some synonyms that the scriptures give us for those who are believers. Chosen ones, child of God, saints, his workmanship. It is the very same word that God the Father called God the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's what God is always doing. He is always calling us to what we already are. He is saying, you're already in Christ. I am calling you to what you already are. Now live like it. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't call us what we're acting like. He calls us to who we actually are in Christ. 
And so as Paul addresses these Corinthian believers as beloved, then the rest in verse 14, he gives this exhortation, this command, flee from idolatry. Because I love you so, I command you to flee from idolatry. Everything about this verb flee communicates that the Corinthians are in danger if they don't listen to him. The verb tense there literally says, keep on fleeing, keep on running, never stop fleeing from idolatry, never turn around and play with it, never talk to it, don't engage it, run. It is a picture, I thought of, what's his name, run, farce, run, right? Just keep running. It's a picture of Joseph in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife came to him day after day and said, lie with me, lie with me. Joseph didn't turn and talk to her. And can we sit down and, and, uh, and have a milkshake and chit-chat about this? No, Joseph ran. That's the picture here. And the reason is idolatry, the idols, they win, and they win easily. Frederick Nietzsche put it this way, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. So why is Paul waving this flag of idolatry so dramatically to flee it? Because he doesn't want them to experience the painful consequences of their sin and how that sin affects not only them, but everyone who knows them. Now you and I have lived, most of us have lived life long enough to know that your sin or my sin not only affects me, but it affects everyone around them. There's a shrapnel effect that everyone that loves you and cares for you and is with you is affected by your sin. Paul spoke to that in chapter 9 when he said, I run this race with self-control and self-discipline so that I will not be disqualified. Not losing his salvation, but losing his influence, his ministry to put shame on Christ in the kingdom and the gospel. Paul is saying here, no person is strong enough to fight idolatry. Every person is vulnerable. It is dangerous. Paul is saying to fall in love with this world. That's the danger he's warning them about. That's why he's being so dramatic. It is dangerous to offend the majesty and holiness of God. It is dangerous to be immune from accountability and authority. It is dangerous for us that we would lose our love of truth. It is dangerous to grow, to be insensitive to the good of others. It is dangerous for us to compartmentalize our lives into a sacred and a secular. Paul is saying here, flee from idolatry because you're in danger. It, it is a picture of a parent, and I've certainly done this, and I've had, you know, Unfortunately, I didn't have it done to me much growing up, sort of live as you please and whatever, just stay out of jail, I think was the goal for my parents, which I did, but so how about that? I can brag about that. <laughs> um, but it, it's this picture of us as parents. We see our kids. We see them. They're, they're playing with fire. They're walking on the edge. They're making choices that are so dangerous. And we're saying to them, 
stop. Get away from the edge. And our kids many times just look at us like, what's wrong with you? That's Paul, what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians. So he gives them motive, his motive and his mandate. And then uh, in the next verses, 16 through 22, Paul, what he does really is set two tables with two masters, but there's only one choice. Two tables, two masters, and one choice. Let's read together the rest of this passage, starting in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here, Paul, what he does, he sets two tables side by side. One table, you have the Lord's table, what we know is Lord's Supper or communion, around which the Corinthians, just like we do, they remember and are reminded of the shed blood of Christ, his death on their behalf for the forgiveness of sins and his burial and resurrection. And they do that by the symbols of the bread and the wine or the broken body and the shed blood. That's one table. But the Corinthians have said that table is not enough. They have felt full freedom while, while sitting at that table to also sit at another table. They felt the freedom that remembers a pagan ritual where idols are worshipped and to which sacrifices are made to demons. And Paul is addressing that now. He's bringing it to a head. And he asks seven rhetorical questions to make his point in this text. So, he starts with the Lord's table. So it reminds us all what Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf. And in verse 16, he uses the word participation. It is a familiar word. It is a Greek word that most of us might have heard called koinonia, or fellowship, or partnership, or shared life, or communion, or what we have in common. So, Paul says in verse 16... When believers take this cup and bread, they are reminded of their intimate koinonia with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's one purpose of communion. Now, later in chapter 11, we're going to see more details around that supper. But that's where he starts here with this point. And then in verse 17, he says, this koinonia experience is not just limited to Christ but it also creates a shared life with those in whom we take the Lord's Supper with. The Lord's Supper or communion is meant to gather God's people together around the main thing that brings them together, the main thing they have in common, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel. So there's a connection with Christ, but there's also a connection with the body, Paul is saying. 
The Lord's table is a reminder and a celebration of the one thing that trumps everything in our very diverse lives. That's what Paul's saying here. No matter your ethnicity, no matter your financial uh, status, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what your job, no matter, no matter any of that, no matter your hobbies, no matter your personality, introvert, extrovert, octovert, whatever you are. Paul's saying, look, what makes us have something in common if we have nothing in common is this broken body and this shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul said that is a reminder. And what we do here on a monthly basis is we take that. We took it last week. So it's a powerful picture that Christ set this meal in place himself. It's a reminder we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So in light of that, Paul goes on to verse 18. And what he does in verse 18, like in last week's passage, Paul brings up the people of Israel. Last week in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, Paul brought up Israel and said, look at your forefathers. There's a lesson to learn here. And here he takes them back to Deuteronomy 14 in which the Israelites ate portions of the meat that had been sacrificed to Yahweh. And by this meal, those people, the Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament were bound together in their common worship of Yahweh. So in verse 18, Paul's point is this. This meal that has been sacrificed to Yahweh makes it a worship of Yahweh. Totally fine. But any other meal sacrificed to any other God is actually idolatry. He's just making that clear. He's showing a connection between here's the worship of Yahweh and here's the worship of false gods. Even though there's a meal involved, it depends on the God that that meal is sacrificed to. Verse 18. And then in 19, he reiterates something he said back in chapter 8. And here's what he said. That food offered to, and here's what he says again, repeats himself. Food offered to idols, it's just that. It's just food. Idols, idols themselves are just idols. They're just a piece of wood. They're just a piece of gold. They're just a piece of metal. They have no inherent power in themselves. They are lifeless. They are empty and void. But he is trying to say, despite all of this, you Corinthians are in danger. Even though they're just, it's a nothing. It's, it's, this, it's this mic here. This thing is a God that will bring you hair on a bald head. That's, that's Paul's saying, you know what? You're still in danger. And in verse 20, he drops the hammer down of why they are in danger. Verse 20 says, what I am saying is the sacrifice. What I am implying here, what I mean is the sacrifice of meats to a pagan God in a pagan temple is an offering to demons. It is demon worship. And I do not want you to have fellowship with, to have a shared life with, to have kononia with, to have communion with demons. Paul brings it to a very clear point here. When you go to a pagan temple and you eat meat that has been sacrificed to demons, you are now worshiping demons. 
Verse 20 is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32, where Aaron, as I mentioned last week, made the golden calf for the people of God to worship, and they rose up to play. And we talked about last week that phrase, rose up to play, was just debauchery. That their worship of a false god led them to sin at the highest level. Here's what one writer, how he summarized verse 20. I really liked it. He said, although idols themselves do not have valid spiritual reality and do not present an actual God, there is a spiritual reality behind them, behind the idol, and that they have been created and instigated by demons posing as gods, and those who worship are actually worshiping those demons. Paul said, that's why you're in danger. We know from the scripture, Ezekiel 28 tells us that demons are angels that rebelled against God. And everything they do, John tells us, writes in John chapter 8, everything they do is to deceive us, to destroy us, to kill us spiritually, to blind us, to take you down dark paths because they know they cannot take your salvation. To interrupt and steal your ability to live for the glory of God and instead woo you to live for your flesh. That's what demons do. They do that not by appearing, knocking on your door, saying, hello, I'm a demon and have horns on my head and a pitchfork in my hand. They do that by lying to you and I. And we believe the lie. Verse 21 Paul moves on, and he says there's two tables. One is the Lord's Supper that reminds you of God's work on your behalf, and the other is the table that leads you to demonic worship and sin. And here Paul just says very plainly, you can't have it both ways. You can't do both. You can't straddle the fence with their foot on each side of that fence. He's really quoting Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24. No one, what does no one mean in the Greek, by the way? No one, that means none of us. No one can serve two masters. That's why this series is called Dethroned. Either we are on the throne or Christ is on the throne. Me and Christ, it ain't working with us both on the throne. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Just as oil and water don't mix, neither do gods, the God of Yahweh, the God of the Scripture, and idols. Neither does Christ and Satan mix. One writer put it this way, he says, One does far more than have dinner when one attends a pagan sacrificial meal. And then in verse 22, as we wind up the text, before we get into the application, he asked question six and question seven to make his point. He says, he is jealous for his own glory. God is jealous for his own glory, and it's his holy jealousy that is the very core or the character of God. And Paul, Paul asked this question, he says, will you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Will you provoke God to come after you like we sang about? 
because he will not allow his children to, to commit spiritual adultery with other gods. Will you provoke his jealousy? You are my beloved people. I will not let you sit by and worship idols. Notice the warning, interesting, that Paul gives. Will you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Notice that Paul doesn't warn the Corinthians about the power of demons. He warns them about the jealousy of God. <laughs> That's what we should be concerned about. Here's what you and I need to understand. God will work in our life and in my life to rid us, his people, of idol worship so that we might run to him and worship him only. Now, you say, Jeff, thank you. That's informative. That's helpful to understand this text. But Jeff, I, I, I promise you, between me, you, and the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not going to a pagan temple. I'm not going to eat meat, sacrifice to a pagan God. I promise you. Everybody promise? Can, can I have 100% participation? I'm going to sin a lot of ways, but I promise you're not going to do that. I want to spend an extended amount of time this morning applying this text to us. We don't have pagan temples, but we do have idols. So the third point is our counterfeit gods and how to dethrone them. Last week in chapter 10, verse 11, Paul tells us that these things were written down for our instruction. <clears throat> Here in the U.S., our idols are not necessarily made of wood. And we don't go to pagan temples, or, but our idols are way more refined and even accepted. We're so easily deceived by the deceiver to believe the lie of what will give me life, what will give me meaning and worth and value and significance and security. And when we believe his lies, the same demon that was pulling the wool over the eyes of the people in Corinth is pulling the wool over our eyes. When we believe his lies, we end up worshiping things that demons have actually wooed us to. They have whispered, bite this apple. It's the same as Genesis 3. Bite this apple and you will feel better. Bite this apple and it will make you look better. Bite this apple and it will satisfy you. Bite this apple, it will encourage you. Bite this apple, it will make you somebody. Bite this apple, it will give you pleasure. And we open wide and we bite. And we don't even know what we did or why we did it. So our idols are not wood or gold. But our idols are what we would call and others have called throughout history of the church, idols of the heart. And Paul's strong exhortation to the Corinthians to flee idolatry, my beloved, is the same exhortation he would say to us as Christ followers today. My beloved, flee idolatry. I thought about how it is so normal as humans, we start out in life trying to make our heart's fondest dreams come true. And if they do, 
in some ways, it's usually the worst thing that can happen to us. I'm reminded of my six years working with the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds, and every one of those guys dreamed as a little fellow like I did to grow up to play professional sports. And honestly, they made it. And they were some of the most miserable human beings behind the scenes that I've ever encountered in my 54 years of living. The reason is, Paul writes again in Romans 124, that one of the worst things God can do is to give you over to the desires of your own heart. And the reason is that our hearts mold these desires into idols. Because Romans 1.25 says they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. See, every heart must live for something. It is hardwired to live for something. It's hardwired in us to do that. So typically what we do, we take some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself in Christ can give us. Let me give you a couple examples from my own life. Football in college, for me, was an idol. And when I lost it, I mean, it's the thing that gave me worth and value and significance. And when I lost it beginning of my sophomore year, meaning I lost it for that year, I was slated to play and start and had a major knee injury. Um, I lost all meaning and purpose to live. Part of what God used to bring me to Christ was showing me that football is a terrible God. <laughs> I thought of another one. I thought when Jen and I got married, how we, as we look back now, we, we looked at each other to satisfy in each other what only God himself could satisfy. We made each other an idol, and we were terrible gods for each other. <laughs> I thought about when my dad died. Now, obviously, I'm not emotionless, and the Scripture's not emotionless. There's a lot of grief and sadness in the Scriptures when people die that we love. That's normal. But I went into a horrible <laughs> this didn't bother me typing it last night. Still got dad issues. I wanted so bad my dad to say, I am so proud of you. And when he's dead, he can't say that. So I went into a horrible 10 month despair. I had made my dad into an idol. I was doing more than grieving the loss of a father. And then, I'm a little embarrassed to say this one, but I think you'll understand, when I first came to this church, and we had 32 people sitting in the auditorium at Blackman Middle School, and six months later, after my arrival, we had 17. <laughs> um, and I... I just remember being so full of anxiety. We had a, a year and a half timeline left until our supporters weren't paying our paycheck anymore, that the church had to absorb our salary. And I just remember God exposing to me that this had become an idol 
because I was so worried that people would think uh, about what kind of Christian leader I am to actually go to a church that had been started and then kill it, you know? <laughs> and so uh, seems foolish. But those were opportunities for God to expose my idol and to teach me to trust him. So I want to say to you this morning, <clears throat> one of the top 10 things I thought about this, that I've ever learned that, have, that has helped me to grow spiritually is what I'm going to give you this morning. <clears throat> to help me see the connection between my sin and the idols of my heart. See, typically I see the fruit of my sin, but I fail to see the root reason, the why behind the what. And what idols do is they tell us what the root is, the why behind the what. I was thinking about Tom Brady, uh, who I um, uh, saw a, a video about him. And here's what he said. He says, spirituality means to me your deepest purpose. I want to know the whys of life. Why are we here? Where are we going Trying to find that deeper purpose and to find it in sports makes so much sense to me. And I thought, Tom Brady is asking the right questions. But in his own self-trust, he has found the wrong answer. After hundreds of millions of dollars, two model wives, one of the most famous people on the earth, he too is searching for what everyone in here is searching for that can be only found in Christ. And so let me read with you. If you'll take this paper this morning, we're going to give you a test to take home today. But I want to read, I want to set the table with us about idols of the heart. And then I'm going to give you a test to take home so you can begin to identify what are your idols. Let me just read and you read along silently. To us contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bound down before statues. In Corinth, for example, there was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Our society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its own shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and, the, and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, comfort, control, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? They are idols of the heart. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. Why do we lie? fail to love, break our promises, or live selfishly. After we sin, we ask questions like, what were we thinking? How could we have been so blind? Why did we act so irrationally? Why did we completely lose sight of what is right? It is because the human heart takes even good things like successful careers, love, sex, children, saving face, social standing, peer approval, competence and skill, beauty, brains, politics, respect, perfectionism, workaholism, 
the need to control the lives of others, social calls, your morality and virtue, ministry, material possessions, family, work, religion, race, relationships, etc., and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts defy them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significant security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. Anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, a counterfeit God. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. The best way to describe this kind of relationship to these things is worship. These idols of the heart always promise high, but they always deliver low. The Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to idols of the heart. They love idols, they trust idols, and they obey idols. It also calls idolatry committing spiritual adultery. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The only way to free ourselves from the destruction influence of counterfeit gods is to obey Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry and turn back to the only true Lord, the only one who can fulfill you, and when you fail him, can actually forgive you. And so as you start, you so what this morning? I want you to start to take a few minutes to actually look at those questions and answer them honestly to identify your idols of the heart and obey Paul's command. What a great gift. Flee idolatry, my beloved. Take a few minutes to answer those questions.